Hello, everyone. Political Science Podcast. My name is Dr. Matthew Panarella, and we're on episode 11, number two of 2023. And today, what I wanted to talk to you about was rabies, which we usually use the term rabies, meaning that an animal has rabies. But really, what I'm talking about is the rabies virus and signs that it causes in animals and how we can prevent it and how we can treat human beings. All right, so I started off the podcast by saying that rabies is a virus. We've talked about viruses a little bit already, and not so much bacteria, but when I talked about viruses, I mentioned that viruses are not living organisms like bacteria, protozoa, fungi. Viruses are little bits of genetic information material that need a a, a body, a, another body, another cell, cellular system in which to uh, put that DNA or RNA into for the DNA or RNA to replicate. So the virus actually is using an animal's body, sort of hijacking an animal's body, its cells, in which to propagate itself the virus. So rabies is what we call a zoonotic disease, which is a disease transmissible from animals to people. It's a zoonotic disease with the highest case fatality rate of all infectious diseases, and it's probably on the order of 98% fatal, and I'll make a caveat. In the last 10 to 20 years, human medicine has learned how to treat some people successfully who have had rabies virus get into their central nervous system, and they have survived. They've survived. They've not returned to complete uh, 100%. Uh, completely, you know, I'll use the, uh, the term normal, that they were before they got ill, but they did survive. And that is pretty much a miracle at this point, because really there is no specific treatment to treat rabies once it gets into your central nervous system. My understanding is that, that what happens is a person with the rabies virus in their central nervous system is expressing a tremendous amount of behavioral symptoms. It might be in a coma. And what they do is they uh, anesthetize the person and put them down deeper in a coma, and they keep them anesthetized for a period of time to allow the body to attack the virus and eliminate the virus, and then they re recover those people, and sometimes that has been successful, although it's a very, a very small number of people who have survived that. So rabies itself, as an overview, is an acute progressive encephalomyelitis, meaning that it's it's short, it's coming on short term. It is continuing to get worse and worse. And encephalomyelitis, if we break that down, encephalo is talking about the brain, and myelitis is talking about the the, um, the coverings of the myelin sheath of the uh, neurons in the central nervous system. So the viral tropism for rabies virus is the central nervous system, and the disease affects all mammals. The disease is fatal unless treated prior to clinical signs in people. There is no treatment for animals. I've just gone into how human beings are treated for rabies. If you want to put a name to the virus, it's called the Lissa virus. There's multiple families, subfamilies, uh, different genre of viruses, but that's the, the main type of virus that this is. It is an endemic virus, and I'm not talking about the U.S. I will talk about some other countries in a few minutes. But in the United States, the disease is endemic in wildlife. It is worldwide. It's ubiquitous. It is everywhere in the world, basically, except there are some islands that, have, uh, that claim to be rabies-free, such as the United Kingdom. And when I was looking this 
researching this, there is some, um, again, I'll get into it a little bit more, but there are some rabies variants in bats in the UK. So technically it's not rabies free, but for wild and domestic animals, for the most part, yes, you can consider it. And apparently there's no rabies on um, Antarctica. The reservoir in the United States are dogs, bats, and wild animals. And when I had mentioned that this was a zoonotic disease, that means it's a public health issue. It's a public health concern, and public health departments in the counties throughout the United States and the states themselves are extraordinarily concerned about rabies, which means it's a reportable disease. So if a veterinarian were to examine an animal and found out that that animal was having some behavioral clinical signs, and depending on the history of the animal, the veterinarian has to call, is obligated to call part of our part of our responsibility, the county department of health. And then the county department of health will be involved and has to be involved because we can have a like I said, this disease is 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 fatal in human beings. And historically, if you want to go back early in the 20th century, the, the late 19th century in the United States, dogs were the number one carrier of rabies, and rabies, there was a huge epidemic in dogs. And, and I'm sure a lot of dogs were put down because of that, and also uh, the development of a vaccine uh, came about, and that led to almost the complete elimination, or basically the elimination of the dog variant in the United States. So, Maintaining one of the themes that I'd like to repeat probably several times is that your domestic animals and any animal that can be vaccinated legally for rabies should be vaccinated and you should, be, should maintain that vaccine. If you do nothing else, as I told clients, at a minimum, you should get an animal examined and have it vaccinated for rabies and keep that vaccine up because if it's not kept up, that's going to lead to complications down the line. If your your pet gets exposed to an animal, number one, hopefully that you have the body, but number two, if it's exposed for a while, an animal gets into a, any exposure, a fight or what have you. That's going to cause you problems if your animal is not up to date or at vaccinated for rabies at all. So what species does rabies affect? I said it affects all mammals, and part of what spurred me to use or, or cover rabies as a topic here was when I was on the internet, I happened to come across, by chance, people talking about possums, and possums are immune, basically, to rabies, and that's baloney and nonsense, which I'm sure a lot of you are shocked that there's nonsense on the internet. There you have it. Possums can get rabies. Possums can carry rabies. They don't have their own variant of rabies, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but they can become infected with rabies and they can transmit rabies. So not everything you read on the internet is accurate. What are the reservoirs and uh, what are the vectors of rabies? And it's going to vary by geography here in the United States and pretty much across the world from North America. In Canada, Alaska, it's the red or Arctic fox that is is the reservoir and the vector, meaning the vector how the disease is spread, transmitted from animals to people. On the east coast in the United States, it's primarily a raccoon uh, variant. In the southwest through Texas, that would be New Mexico, uh, Arizona, and such. 
uh, it's the gray fox. And in California and the central United States, it's skunks. And in the central, north central, that spreads up into Canada. So you can see particular regions have particular regions of the U.S. and Canada have particular species of animals that are carrying rabies in them, and it's perpetuated in those animals, and then they're spreading it to other animals. There's multiple variants of rabies in bats, depending on the bat species in the United States. In Latin America, I think a lot of people have probably heard of vampire bats. Well, vampire bats in Latin America are carrying rabies and are a source of transmission or vector to, to people and uh, primarily livestock. Okay, in Northern Europe, wolves are the main reservoir of rabies. And uh, I think those are two good examples for the rest of the world. If you go across the rest of the world, there's there's other species and other geographies and other locations that are out of the reservoir and the transmitter of rabies. In the U.S., basically cats are cats. Cats are now the most commonly affected domestic animal. There is no cat-to-cat transmission, but cats are a vector for people. So, what does this mean? It means that that some of those stray cats that are being adopted or picked up by people are carrying rabies and are uh, the means by which most people now are exposed to rabies and along with bats. Okay, so cats and bats are the uh, number one transmitted people at this point. And how is rabies transmitted? Rabies is basically transmitted via the saliva, meaning that an animal has to bite you and inject that saliva, which would be on its teeth, into your body, and then that virus will travel along the nerves in your body and get into your central nervous system. And this also includes bats. I had mentioned a vampire bat, but other bats can bite. And there also has been some, some ability of bats to aerosolize the rabies virus in their saliva. So there are people that have become exposed Two bats, when a bat is, is gets into a dwelling and the bat is flying around, and then people try to get the bat, try to get the bat out, and they have been exposed. So you never want to touch a bat. That's hundred percent certain. You never want to deal with a bat in your house. If you can open a window, open a window and get the bat out. If you can't, then trap it and it should go to the county health department. So you'd have to call the county health department to see if the bat is rabid or not. 70% of the cases in the U.S. are caused by bats. That's 70% of the cases in human beings. And that's through either handling of bats or exposure to bats. And curiously enough, in Texas, I think it was about 10, 20 years ago, rabies was transmitted via organ transplantation. I believe it was a, uh, a drug abuser that died. They assumed that, that, I believe it was a male, that he had died from a drug overdose. They harvested his organs, and they used it for transplants in, in ill people, and then transplanted those organs. And when you get an organ transplant, you're on immunosuppressive therapy for the remainder of your life because your body will reject those organs since they're not from your body. And this sets up a perfect scenario for the virus that was in those organs to infect those people. So people actually ended up with rabies that had had an organ transplant. Strange but true. How durable is this virus in the environment? I don't know. I didn't specifically see any information that it was based on some of the information that we have about other viruses. There probably is some durability in the environment. But I would say a dead 
uh, an animal's dead body or a dead animal's body, however you want to say it, and exposure to any of that saliva or brain or spinal cord tissue could, in theory, I think, cause an infection. So you want to be extraordinarily careful with animals when they're found dead and how you handle them. So how are we exposed or other animals exposed to the virus? So the shedding of the virus, so right, remember that, take the scenario of an animal is bitten by another rabid animal, the virus gets injected into its body. That virus is going to move up the peripheral nerves, which are the nerves outside the central nervous system, and then move into the central nervous system, which is the uh, spinal cord and the brain. And then the virus will move up the spinal cord into the brain. And of course, it's going to happen a lot quicker the closer you are to the brain. Animals then are infected once they're bitten. And animals have a variability in how quickly they can start shedding that virus, meaning that your exposure to those animals will expose you to the rabies virus, even though they might not ex be expressing clinical signs. So in dogs, cats, and ferrets, they can all start shedding the virus within 10 days before they appear ill, which is pretty frightening. And it can happen for weeks before a, an, a, an animal in the wild, such as your skunk, such as your raccoon, shows clinical signs, but they can be spreading the virus. So that's how the virus stays endemic. Animals are commingling. They're exchanging saliva in some fashion, and they're just perpetuating the, the spread of the virus to the next animal. Prevention. I had mentioned vaccination for pets. Yes, please keep your pets up to date. I don't think I can say that often enough. I used to say that in practice all the time, and I, I, have, ex I have experience with, with rabies in, in domestic animals. I had a client once that didn't want to vaccinate their cat for rabies, and I told them they should do it just for that scenario of a bat getting in and causing a problem with the health department, and lo and behold, the bat came in, and the cat was not up to date on rabies, and that causes a, a much bigger hassle. Okay, uh, Another anecdote, when I was working in practice, I was working with a, I had been out for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years from veterinary school, and I'd been working with a, with a vet who had only been out a couple of years, and she had seen a kitten in a room and she came out and talked to me and we talked about the uh, history of the animal we had talked about what the animal's behavior was and my strong advice to her was she has to go in there as difficult as this is nobody prepares you for this as a veterinarian actually is you have to go in there and you have to tell the owner you need to euthanize this animal and uh, we need to notify the health department and we need to send the the we remove the head and the head is sent off for testing which i'll speak about in a little bit and that animal came up positive for rabies and the owner had to go through treatment so it 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 may be shocking to people that they adopt or find a stray animal and it starts acting strange, starts attacking people, and then lo and behold, it's rabies positive, and then they need to get treated. This is what public health medicine is all about. It's it's for the protection of people. I mean, ideally, the animals are looped up in there, but the county health department sometimes will sponsor, sometimes county health department sponsor rabies vaccine clinics. Sometimes states do. Sometimes other groups sponsor rabies vaccine clinics, and it's it's a good thing to to keep together. We don't ordinarily vaccinate human beings. Now, this will segue nicely. I'm a high risk. Any veterinarian is a high risk individual for coming in contact with rabies. So in veterinary school, I was 
vaccinated against rabies. And then many years later, I had my titer measured and it was low and I needed a booster. So there is what's called a pre-exposure vaccine. In wildlife, there is an oral vaccine that's put in a bait and that's airdropped over areas to to limit the, the transmission because you're vaccinating the animal against rabies. And rabies is one of the few vaccines that actually will stop an animal from getting rabies, getting the disease if it is bitten. And the oral vaccine for wildlife is been very successful. It's not for public use. It's only for use by states or counties. So that was a general overview of rabies. We're going to segue on the specifics of the disease. The incubation, so how long does it take from exposure to clinical signs? It's very variable. This one is very strange. It's three to 12 weeks, which is a very big time span or longer. And this is only in dogs. So sometimes it could take up to six months for the virus to fully express itself. And I read, I'll say this is anecdotal, that it was many years in a person. So it's not always you're bitten. 10 days later, you show up at the clinical signs. It's not always true. Okay, so the incubation can be short, but it can also be quite extended. So 12 weeks is three months, which is a pretty long time, actually, exposure to, to disease. And what are the clinical signs? So I had already mentioned after exposure to the virus via the saliva, the virus ascends inside the peripheral nerves, and then it gets into the central nervous system. And then once in the central nervous system, it comes back out and down the nerves and heads straight to the salivary glands. And when it heads to the salivary glands, that's how it's actually transmitted via the saliva because the virus is now shed in that saliva. And ultimately, the virus heads down. There's, there's many other uh, what, what are called cranial nerves, nerves coming out of the brain, and the virus will travel down to all the, all the internal organs. And we, I was taught that there's basically two forms of rabies. There's what's called the furious and the paralytic. Okay, the furious, the type, the form of rabies called furious, I believe it would be referenced as, you know, the mad dog syndrome. This is when animals become quite aggressive and they will attack other animals and people. And they will attack other animals and people, usually in the daylight, although not necessarily. And this would be animals acting bizarrely. You could also have it in wildlife where a fox would attack a porcupine, which it would not do if it wasn't acting bizarrely because of the virus. The virus is getting into the brain and causing a tremendous amount of inflammation in the brain. And then that's leading to all of these strange clinical signs and mostly revolved around behavioral changes. So an animal that's doing something it ordinarily should not based on the species, that would be such as seeing a possum during the day or a raccoon during the day, you would ordinarily not do it. And if you see a Possum, or let's say a skunk during the day, it doesn't mean that it is rabid. It means it could be rabid. There are other diseases and, and, and problems that can cause animals to act strangely. So, an animal out in the daylight is not necessarily rabid, but you should consider it rabid and definitely not handle it. So, that was the furious or mad dog basically turning into an aggressive animal. And then there's the paralytic or what would be called the dumb form of rabies. And that's when animals are ataxic. That means they're staggering around and they will uh, have paralysis of the masseter or what's the what's called the cheek muscles, which all animals have, we have. And what ends up happening is the animals cannot swallow. And this is also true of people. I have seen videos 
um, earlier in the uh, 20th century of people that had contracted rabies, and they cannot swallow. So once those those cheek muscles are frozen, people cannot swallow. And then what happens is we all create a tremendous amount of saliva normally. And then the saliva, you, you're swallowing it, but when your, your cheek muscles are frozen, all that saliva that's being produced is now dripping out. And that was what led to people saying that there's hydrophobia or fear of water. People can't drink. It's not that they're afraid of water per se. It's that they can't swallow. They're not able to swallow because the cheek muscles are frozen and you can't swallow. You're getting paralysis of the laryngeal nerves and the esophagus too, you're not able to swallow. So all that saliva is just, you're basically drooling. And if you try to give people water, it will just spill out or it will go into their lungs. With the paralytic or dumb form, animals are not aggressive uh, and they'll, they'll act bizarrely. They might be bellowing as such uh, a, a bovine animal might be bellowing and acting really abnormal. And then Unfortunately, this is how a lot of veterinarians get exposed or other people get exposed. If an animal is acting sort of strangely, they'll open up the mouth and the animal might be sort of choking and you reach into the mouth and you're looking for something and you don't find anything and that animal could be rabid and, and you, you know, you're seeing the salivation and you're opening the mouth. Most people are doing this with their bare hands and they reach in looking for something and lo and behold, they call a vet. They say, well, this could be rabies. We need to euthanize this animal and take its head and, and, and get it tested. And that's one means for people to get, ex get exposed, and veterinarians too. So it's a, it's a little strange. Sometimes you get animals that are standing around, and then sometimes you get animals that are attacking. Well, how do we diagnose rabies? It's very simple. It's what's called a post-mortem test. There's no anti-mortem, which is before death, or pre-mortem. There's no test for an alive animal to diagnose rabies. The only way that it's diagnosed is you have to euthanize an animal, remove the head. You want to save the brain because that's where the virus is located. You send the, the head or the brain to a lab, and in the lab, they will do certain things to prepare the, the brain tissue. They'll look for specific areas and they'll look for the, the virus in the nerves. And there's some telltale signs of that in what's called histopathology. So diagnosis is simple. It can't be done though while an animal is alive. And what are the treatments? Well, for animals, there is no treatment for rabies. There's only prevention, like I had mentioned, getting your pet and keeping your pet up to date for, with the rabies vaccine. And in people, so again, another anecdote, I was friendly with a family and they had a, a small dog, a West Highland White Terror, as a matter of fact, and they had a garage and the garage was open. And then one night, a raccoon came into the garage and started attacking the dog. And the husband basically jumped on the raccoon. The husband dispatched the raccoon. So the husband took care of the raccoon. And then the wife uh, got the dog. The dog got got torn up by the raccoon, and um, and the wife cleaned up the dog. Lo and behold, they ended up calling me, and I said, you know, they wanted to just dispose of that carcass, and I said, you cannot do that. I said, you have to call the county health department, and you have to. And I went over, and I separated the uh, the head from the rest of the body 
And then they submitted that head to the county health department. And then lo and behold, it came up positive for rabies. So they had to get what's called post-exposure prophylaxis, which is immunoglobulin treatment and rabies vaccine treatment. And it's, it's extended out over weeks to, I think, a month or six weeks, give or take. And it was successful. They never ended up getting rabies. The the post-exposure prophylaxis is, is uh, very efficacious. It works very well. So that was uh, that was good for them. But that just shows you, if you come in contact with an animal like that, do not dispose of the body. You need to inform the county or go to your local vet, especially if your pet's attacked. And uh, you need to take the pet to the vet so the vets can treat the wounds on that animal and booster that rabies vaccine, even if the animal's even if the animal has been vaccinated, and then uh, you know notify the county health department so that the people can be treated appropriately. If you have an exposed pet, so I think most people are going to say, "Well, geez, what do I do?" So number one, any exposure of a pet or a person to a potentially rabid animal has to be governed by the county health department. The state has laws too, but the county health departments are the ones that are going to exercise the uh, the state law. And if your pet is up to date and does get into a, a fight with a wild animal, if you have the body or if the animal runs off, you're going to assume the veterinarian is going to assume that the animal was rabid, it's going to booster that rabies vaccine, and they're going to treat, treat the wounds. Now, primarily that animal is going to have to be observed for a period of time, and it's all different depending on your uh, geographic location. If you have a pet with a lapsed vaccine, it's going to depend on the county health department, and they will stay explicitly what they want to happen. Probably what's going to happen is the animal will be treated like it was up to date on its vaccines. There'll be wound care. There'll be a rabies booster. But the observation period is probably going to be longer, and the animal may need to be quarantined or isolated. It could be at a veterinary hospital. I don't know about people's houses, but that, that's certainly a possibility. And if an animal is not vaccinated, straight up, if you have an animal that has never received a rabies vaccine and you have no proof, that's the other part to all of this. It's very easy to say my pet was vaccinated against rabies, but you have no proof. Well, not having any proof is basically the same as the animal is never vaccinated against rabies. There's going to be a recommendation to euthanize that animal. And if that's not an option, then the animal is going to have to be isolated, isolated away from all other animals and people for four to six months. Oh, it's, you put yourself in a tough place if that happens. That's why I'm always, I'll be a little preachy, is keep your animal up to date on rabies. Again, if you do nothing else, it will alleviate a lot of hassle for you and for the animal down the road and hopefully will keep your animal from being euthanized. I only have a couple of links for this episode. This is very enjoyable to me to talk about one that because I have experience with with rabid animals and of course administering multiple over the course of my career rabies vaccines. But this is a serious public health hazard, and this is one of the reasons that veterinary medicine is so integral in human medicine. And and this is over the last ten or twenty years been referred to one health that the health of of human beings and animals are intertwined, and this is a great case for that because you can see how an ill animal can impact a human being and actually potentially cause a fatal disease. And there are many other zoonotic diseases that are fatal in people that I could talk about it at a later time. So I hope this this podcast was informative. It's a little bit shorter than some of my other ones, but I think it's well worth worthwhile. 
Again, I can be contacted at askdrmatt at proton.me. I've enjoyed this podcast, and I hope to see you again for the twelfth episode, whenever that will be. I I will try to do these as as frequently as I can. My ideal has always been once a week, and that's going to depend on my availability and how much I actually have to work. I do put in quite a bit of work to research these podcasts, decide on what topic I want to talk about, and then I edit every podcast and then I put it out there. So it is it is a bit of effort for me. Again, enjoyable but it does take time. So I hope you've enjoyed all these podcasts and I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you.